Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that we can gather in your name, Lord Jesus, that we have access to the throne of grace, and that we can approach it with boldness and confidence, knowing that we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus and that we've been declared righteous and that, God, when you look at us, you do not see us in all of our sin and all of our imperfections and all of our failures and all of our struggles, but you see us as holy and perfect and righteous because you see your Son in us. Thank you that we are in you and you are in us, Lord Jesus. We are united with you. And so, Lord, I I pray that as we open up your word, I pray that you would speak to us, stir our hearts, stir our affections for you. Help us to walk out of here worshiping you. Help us to walk out of here not to try harder, not to try better, but to look more to you, to depend on you, to be captivated by you, to rely on you, to be overwhelmed by you. Lord, help us to to, to put our sins to death. Help us to nail our sins to the cross, knowing that it's been already paid for. So when we open up your word right now, would you speak to us? Will you make yourself known to us? Will you overwhelm us? Will you help us to surrender those areas that we need to surrender? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Um, if you're new here, we're so excited that you've decided to worship with us. Uh, there is a card in the seat in front of you, a connection card. And if you want to fill that out, and all we want to do is just call you, see how we can pray for you, and you can place those cards um, in the drop boxes on your way out. But if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Acts, Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 18. And so we're going to continue our series through the, the book of Acts. And so last week, uh, Paul decided to execute his plan uh, to go visit Jerusalem um, via the route of Macedonia and Achaia. And and so the purpose of Paul wanting to go to Jerusalem was to deliver this offering that he had collected by all the Gentile churches that he had planted. So he had collected this offering among the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Greece, Asia Minor and Galatia. And the purpose of this offering offering was to support the Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And the hope of this this offering and why it was so important for Paul was that this offering would serve as a concrete expression of love and support and solidarity among the Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ and also the Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul had this plan to go to Jerusalem via sea, but unfortunately he discovered that the Jews plotted against them, and so he had to change his plans. And so instead of going via sea, he decided to go via land, and on his way via land, he started to visit all of these churches. And as he visited these churches, and even though he was in a rush, he still took time to support and encourage these Christians in Jesus Christ. And so one of the things we learned last week is that we have, as a, as a people of God, we must commit ourselves to encourage our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We got to encourage one another as we 
gather and the purpose for our gatherings. We're coming to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. We're coming to experience the Lord's Supper and we're coming to hear the word of the Lord. Now in our text today, we're going to see Paul's continue to rush to go to Jerusalem. He wants to make it to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And so he did not want to risk this long delay of stopping by Ephesus uh, because in fear of what happens if the ministry is fruitful, I need to get to Jerusalem. And so instead of uh, going through Ephesus, he bypasses Ephesus. He goes further south to Miletus. And yet he still takes this time to pour into the elders of Ephesus. And so what he's going to do, he's going to call all the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. And what he's going to do is give them a farewell address. And so in his farewell address, he is going to both mingle his example that he lived among them and also give them specific instructions of what it means to shepherd the church. And so my hope for us today is that as we look at this farewell address of Paul, that his example will not just only inspire us, but will also instruct us instruct us of of what it means to to lead the church and oversee the church and so even though when we look at this text this text is specifically for pastors and elders and group leaders or deacons or anybody who's in leadership position to oversee the church I still think this text is relevant for all God's people because in a sense all of God's people are called to the ministry of the gospel. We're called to love one another, care for one another, watch out for one another, encourage one another. And so in our text, we're going to see Paul addresses these elders, and there's some good principles that we can find from his example of how he lived among them and also these specific instructions. And so my hope for us is as I speak to our elders or those who want to pursue eldership, I'm also speaking to all of you so that you can see what it means to be the church. Because we're all part of the body of Christ, which Christ bought with his precious blood. So let's look at this farewell address of Paul to the elders in Ephesus. Look at uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 18. It says this. When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plot of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of God's grace." And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Now, as I said, the outline really of our text, we can break it up in two parts. Paul's example and Paul's instruction. 
And so the very first part of his address to the elders in Ephesus is him talking about his example and how he lived among them and ministered to them. And so if you're taking notes, the very first thing we learn about Paul's example is Paul identified with the people. He identified with the people. Look at verse 18 again. He says, when he came to them, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. In other words, what he says, I lived among you. I was accessible. Paul was not some celebrity pastor who would kind of hide out in his office or in the green room and just enter the stage to preach his message and then after his message disappear so that he won't get bogged down by people. No, that's not what he did. What did he do? He lived among the people. They knew him. He knew them. And because he was with the people in Ephesus, he knew their needs. He knew them. He walked with them. He knew their hopes. He knew their struggles. He he knew their fears. He knew the things that they needed. And because he lived with them and understood them, he was able to apply the word of God and the gospel truths to address their hopes, their fears, their dreams, their struggles, and their sins. And so I think one of the truths for all of us that we can learn is that if we want to minister to one another, Regardless of your leadership position in the church, just if you're simply part of the body of Christ, which you are, if you want to minister to one another, you must be involved in one another's lives. Because how can you encourage one another? How can you take the word of God and apply it to one another's lives if you don't know what's going on in one another's lives? And so because Paul identified with these people, he knew exactly what was going on. He knew how they thought. He knew how they felt. He knew what they struggled with. And he was able to take the word of God and speak truth into their lives. And so this is what we can apply to all of us. Get involved in one another's lives. Because if you do, you know what's going on. You'll be able to effectively encourage one another with the word of God. I love what Tony Marita says for the, for the pastors and for the leaders in our church. He says, as pastors, let us find our way to be involved in people's lives and avoid merely being the sages on the stages. The gurus, the philosophers, the experts on the stages. You know where the ministry works? Starts not here out in the middle of the lives of the people. And so we see Paul identified with the people. The the second truth uh, that we can learn from Paul's example is not only did he identify with the people, but if you're taking notes is this, he served the Lord with humility and passion. He served the Lord, not the people, but the Lord with humility and passion. Look at verse 19 again. He says this, Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plot of the Jews. So Paul saw his ministry as not serving people, but serving the Lord. So when he was ministering to the people, when he was evangelizing uh, to, to, to the unbelievers, whether he was teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, or where he was visiting one another's homes, who was he serving? He was serving the Lord. See, see, here's the reality, and here's what's true for all of us. All of us are serving someone or something. 
The question is, who are you serving? You're serving something or someone, whether it's yourself or whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children or whether it's Jesus. We're all serving something or someone, whether you believe in God or not. And so the question is for us as Christians, who are you serving? And so in Paul's life, we saw he was serving the Lord. But notice how he was serving the Lord. He was serving the Lord in humility. He was serving the Lord in tears. He was serving the Lord during trials. And and so in his humility, it denotes his posture before God and people. In his trials, it reminds us of his courage and his faithfulness. And in his tears, it draws attention to his tenderness. And and I think this kind of service that Paul is talking about in verse 19 is this kind of uh, service to the Lord that is a direct result of a gospel understanding. Like think about the impact of the gospel in Paul's life or even the impact the gospel should have in our lives when it comes to serving the Lord in humility, in tears, in tenderness, and also during trials. Think about what the gospel does. The gospel humbles us. Why? Because we know that we are undeserving of God's grace. Like think about the, 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 before we were in, in Christ. We were dead in our sins. Enemies of God. Objects of wrath. Part of the domain of darkness. And yet through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the grace that he's extended to us through faith. Now we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're no longer dead in our sins, but now we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. We're no longer enemies of God, objects of wrath, but now we are the people of God, enjoying the blessings of God. And what do we do to obtain it? absolutely nothing it's this wonderful grace that was lavished on us and what is grace grace is getting something you do not deserve and so what the gospel does first of all it humbles us and it allows us to serve the lord humbly because we know all that we have in life we did not do a thing to deserve it it is all by his grace because of this grace that was lavished for us, it humbles us. It should make us to, uh, willing to do whatever needs to be done in order to proclaim the gospel effectively to all. But not, not only does the gospel humble us, but the gospel also makes us tender because the Spirit of God makes us love one another, makes us gentle to people. It turns us into Christ. And Jesus Christ was the ultimate weeping prophet. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When Jesus saw the crowds, he wept because he saw they were a sheep without a shepherd. And so this spirit-empowered servant is a broken-hearted servant. And so we see Paul being so captivated by the gospel that it humbles him, that it brings him to tears as he looks at people. And and this is as a direct result of his gospel understanding. And this is what the gospel should do to us. It should humble us. It should bring tears into our eyes. It should break our hearts for those who are lost and dead in their sins. 
And the last thing, the gospel makes us courageous because we know we don't need to fear man. Paul was not afraid of men. Paul was not afraid to die because in his mind is, what, what can man do to me? Kill me? I no longer have to fear death. Why? Because Jesus has defeated death. He, he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to die is gain, to live is Christ. What do I have to lose? If I die, I gain. If I live, I have Christ. Either way, alive or dead, I still get Christ. And it's all for my benefit because of what Christ has done. And so what the gospel did in Paul's life and what the gospel should do in our lives, it should allow us to live with this unstoppable boldness when it comes to sharing the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he is going to do. And so that means for us that we need to constantly walk in gospel truth as it works deeply into our hearts, as we serve the Lord by serving one another in humility, with tears, and also with courage. You see, we find ourselves living in a world full of bullies or cowards. And yet what we need today is men and women that have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that can serve people in humility, with tears, and yet also in courage. And so Paul, in his example uh, to these elders in Ephesus, he, 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 he says, not only have I been with you and I've identified with you, I've walked with you, I've lived with you, but man, I have served the Lord in humility and tears and through many trials. And the third thing, his third example, if you're taking notes, is this. He, he taught the gospel. Look at verse, uh, verse 20. He says, you know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has been so deeply changed by grace, taught the gospel to everyone everywhere he did not shrink back from teachings that was, that, that was profitable. He taught the whole plan of the Lord. Every part of the word of the Lord he taught. You know what's so important for us today? is to teach the whole plan of the Lord. Even in an age of tolerance. Like, let us not give in to culture, but let us lovingly and courageously teach the whole plan of God. Here's what we have to understand with teaching the gospel. The gospel in its simplest forms means good news. Why is it good news? Because there's awful news. And if we take away the awful news, the good news is no longer good. And if all we do is focus on the awful news and we don't share the good news, what only news are we sharing? The awful news. And what Paul is saying is, I've been sharing everything. I shared the good news with you and I shared the awful news. And by sharing the awful news, you realized how good the good news was. Even though some Jews did not want to hear it, I still shared it. And so for us, as, as elders, as pastors, or those who aspire for that position, when leadership, or even for you, that this, this just a covenant member of this church. We're going to teach the gospel, the whole gospel, 
Not just the good parts of it, but also the bad parts of it. Because it's the bad parts that make the good parts really good. And if we shrink back because of tolerance or not wanting to offend, you're doing an injustice to the gospel and the gospel is no longer good news. And so Paul shared, I I shared everything with you. The, The fourth example, if you're taking notes, is this. He lived by the Spirit and he treasured Jesus supremely. Look at verse 22. He says, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem compelled by the Spirit not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are awaiting for me. Paul knew what was going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. Later on, there are either going to be brothers and sisters convincing him, saying, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem, because if you do, you will find yourself in chains. Only hardship is waiting for you. Only trials is waiting for you. But Paul, filled with the Spirit, lived in step with the Spirit and viewed Jesus as supremely felt compelled that he had to go, even if that meant he would be in chains. His desire was to finish the race, to finish the ministry that Jesus gave him. And so we can learn from Paul's example. He lived by the Spirit, and he treasured Jesus supremely. You see, the goal of life is not to live a long life, but a full life. The goal of life is to bring glory to God in every aspect of our lives. One of the truths that that I really feel like the Lord's been kind of teaching me uh, through his word is this idea of being captivated by Jesus. One of the things that I know is true for me, and I'm assuming it's true for you, is that when we find ourselves lacking in devotion, you know what the problem is? The problem is not because we lack self-discipline. The problem is not that we can't say no to ourselves. But what really is at the root of the problem is we're not captivated by Jesus. We're captivated by everything else. And here's why I know it's true for you. And it's true for me. If you are captivated by something and it's really important for you, what are you going to do? You're going to move heaven and earth to obtain it or to get to it. Think about what you, all the things that we would do for our children. The reason why we lack devotion to Christ and we have a hard time denying ourselves is because we're not captivated by him. Because we are a people that are quick to get distracted, are quick to get captivated by all other things. And it is so important for us to be so be captivated by him, to, to remind ourselves who he is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. And this is why it's so important for us to gather, to hear the word of the Lord. Because what's the word of the Lord all about? It's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is, what he has done, what he's going to do. What's this table all about? It's all about Jesus. And the word and the table helps us constantly reorient our hearts and our minds. It helps us fix our eyes on Jesus to be captivated by him all over again. Because I, especially me, are quick to wander, quick to take my eyes off Jesus and get captivated by fool's gold. And so it's not the idea of, hey, you need to just do better. You just need to try harder. 
but rather it is the idea of look to Christ and through his spirit be captivated by him and who he is and what he has done. And this is why Paul could do these things. Not because Paul was that awesome. Not because Paul was just very good at disciplining himself and he just was a devoted man. Paul was captivated by Jesus. He viewed Jesus as supreme. He was filled with a spirit that helped him be more and even more captivated by Jesus. And so in Paul's example, as he dresses uh, to, to, to the elders in Ephesus, his example of uh, how he was among the people and how he shepherded the people, I lived among you. I served the Lord in humility and trials and tears. I taught the gospel. I lived by the Spirit. I'm captivated by Jesus. I'm holding him supremely. The fifth thing, if you're taking notes, is that Paul said, I can serve with a clear conscience. Verse 25 says this, And I know that none of you, that none of you among who I, whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. So what, what is he saying? He's saying, look, I'm probably not going to see you ever again. But what I know is that I am clear of any blood on my hands. What does he mean by that? Paul is, is borrowing this imagery from the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel and his ministry was to be a watchman. And the Lord told Ezekiel to be a watchman. And when he sees danger, when he sees the enemy on the horizon, his job was to warn the people. And the people had to listen to him. And if the people refused to listen to him and to refuse to act on the warning, blood is on their own hands. But if Ezekiel failed to warn the people, blood will be on his hands. So what Paul is doing, he's using this imagery saying, look, I have warned you of everything. I've taught, taught you the whole plan of God so that I am not innocent of any blood. And if you're not responding to it, that's on you. It's not on me. My hands are clean. I've taught the whole counsel of God, even the parts you did not want to hear. I have taught from creation to fall, from redemption to judgment and consummation. And so how do we apply this to us? We have to warn one another, even if that means it's uncomfortable. We have to teach one another the whole plan of God. And if we see one another falling in sin or drifting towards sin, it is our job to step in and to warn them. Because if we see it and we don't say anything, blood is on your hands. This, this passage a couple years ago really moved me because it made me realize that I am going to be held responsible for what I've taught and what I've not taught. And if I've not taught the whole plan of God, blood is on my hands. And so learning this from, 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 from Paul and, and his example, how he fulfilled his ministry in humility and passion and faithfulness, how he said, I've lived among you. I've taught you everything that could be taught. I've held Jesus supremely. I live by the Spirit. 
I've served the Lord in humility and in passion. This was his example. And now he's going to go to the instructions part. And he gives these elders three instructions. As he hands the church over to them and say, I'm probably never going to see you again. And you are the shepherds of the church. And here's your responsibility. Look at verse 28. Here's the very first instruction he gives them. Be on God for yourself and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourself know that I work with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And after he said this, he knelt down, prayed with all of them. And there were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. What a sad part of this text. This farewell address. And so after Paul was looking back to his example, he now looks ahead. He announces his departure to Jerusalem with the expectations we're never going to see each other again. He gives instructions, and he also predicts the future of the church. But look at verse 28 here. What's the very first instruction he gives them? It says, be on your guard for who? For yourself. Another way of looking at some of your translations, it says, watch your life. So here's the very first instruction that that Paul gives these elders if you're taking notes. Watch your life. Be on guard for yourself. In other words, he's reminding these elders, these pastors, these overseers, the utter necessity of holiness and the pursuit of godliness. What's the most important thing a pastor must do? Pursue godliness. Pursue holiness. Pursue Christ-likeness. Watch your life. Guard yourself. Charles Spurgeon says this to his students. When we say to you, my dear brethren, take care of your life, we mean be careful of even the minutia of your character. Avoid little debts, unpunctuality, gossip, nicknaming, petty quarrels, and all other of those little vices which fills the ointment with flies. All the little mundane details of your life, the things that you don't think is a big deal, watch it. Pursue godliness, 
pursue holiness. Paul even tells something similar to, to Timothy uh, in, in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, pay a close attention to your life and to your teaching. Perse- uh, per- persevere in these things, for in doing this you will save both yourself and your hear- hearers. So in other words, he's even telling Timothy, watch yourself. Watch your life. Guard your life. In other words, Timothy, one of the most important things that you can do is to pursue godliness, to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ-likeness. If you do it and you remain on teaching faithfully, you will save not just your life, but also those who hear you. And, and I think this is important for us, all of us, not just the elders of this church or those who desire to be elders. All of us can apply this to our lives. What's the most important thing for you to do? Is watch your life, guard your life, pursue godliness, pursue holiness. Because without godliness, without holiness, without Christ-likeness, there's no ministry. Paul says, watch your life persistently. Do not stop putting sin to death. Do not stop pursuing Christ-likeness. And since we're all ministers of the gospel and we're all called to minister to one another, without pursuing godliness, there's no ministry. You're wasting your time. So one of the most important things you can do today and one of the instructions, the applications that I'm going to nail home at the end, watch your life. Pursue godliness. Pursue holiness. But he doesn't just stop here. Look at the second instructions. Not only does he say, be on your guard for yourself, but look at the second part of verse 28. Be on your guard for yourself and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseer to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So in other words, the second instruction he gives them is watch the flock. Watch yourself watch others now i think there's two truths that we can get from 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 verse 28 and that's very important the very first truth we can get is who appoints uh, overseers of the church look at verse 28 again be on your guard for yourself all the flock of which the holy spirit has appointed you as overseer So the Holy Spirit is the one that appoints the elder. So in other words, a man cannot appoint himself to ministry. But rather, it is the Spirit of God working inside of the man of God and stirring inside of him this desire to serve in the role of an overseer. One of the number one qualifications of a pastor or overseer or an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, He who desires the task of an overseer desires a noble task, a noble work. It's not godliness that's the number one qualification. Above reproach, that's number two, but the number one is desire. And it's the Holy Spirit that stirs in that man in his heart that desire to serve in that capacity. That's the first part. But then also the second part, it is the local church that affirms the Spirit-initiating calling by following the Holy Spirit. 
So it's not just one man deciding I'm going to be an elder because I have that desire and the Spirit tells me, but it's also the church coming together and seeing that desire and that calling and that biblical qualifications and approving of that. But here's the second truth that's really important that Paul reveals to us. Not only is it the Holy Spirit that appoints the elder, but who does the church belong to? Look at this. Second part of verse 28, which he purchased with his own blood. Man, this truth really hit me a couple years ago. Who does the church belong to? Doesn't belong to me. Doesn't belong to you. I don't care how long you've been a member here. I don't care if your family bought this property, built this building. Church does not belong to you. The church does not belong to me. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he bought the church with his very own blood. So how should we view the church? If the church was bought by the blood of Christ, how should we view the church? As valuable. Think about how precious we are as the church, that we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this really speaks in, in, in to us and sometimes when it comes to our perspective, when it comes to the church. Because I know in, in our culture today, there's a lot of jaded views when it comes to the church. And some of you, you've been hurt by the church and you have a low view of the church. Some of you have no desire for the church. You look at the church with disdain. And let me remind you, yes, the church is imperfect because the church is filled with people. But let me remind you of this truth. Jesus bought the church with his very own blood. And by purchasing the church with his blood, it gives value to the church because it reminds us that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. The church is the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And the church is far from being perfect, but the church every day is being perfected in Jesus Christ. Let's not have a low view of the church. Let's have a high view of the church. When we shepherd the church, when we pour into the church, when we minister to the people in the church, let us minister to it knowing we didn't pay a dime for it, but Christ paid for it with his very own blood. And this is what he reminds these elders. Watch the flock. Why? The Holy Spirit appointed you. Jesus bought the church with his very own blood. And then he says in verse 29, here's how he predicts the future. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. So why should they watch the flock? Why should they guard it? Not because just the Spirit appointed them. Jesus bought it with his own blood because savage wolves are going to come in and to destroy it. So not only is the church going to face danger from the outside, but also danger from the inside. And you know what happened? Not long after Paul's departure, not long after Paul's arrest, he writes to Timothy, 
who assumed now the lead pastor position in the church of Ephesus, who joined these elders. And he says to them, men have come in among you and have taught this horrible doctrine that you must fight against. Cling to the truth, Timothy. You know what one of the seven churches in Revelation is Ephesus. You know what they were accused of? They have forsaken their first love. False doctrine have crept in. They took their eyes off of Christ. And this didn't even happen like, like in a five-year time span. You would think false doctrine would maybe come when these elders die. Dude, it happened while Paul was in jail. It didn't take long for this false doctrine to come in. And so Paul was not over-exaggerating this threat. This is why he told the leaders, be on alert so that the flock that you would be protected would not be destroyed by these savage wolves. Now, now you think about this. We, we read these instructions and we're thinking to ourselves, man, what an awful weight that these men have to carry. They've appointed, been appointed by the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the church has been bought by the blood of Jesus, and now they have the responsibility to oversee the flock as they watch their own lives to protect it from false doctrine. And you're almost wondering to yourself, this weight is crushing. But I love what Paul says in verse 32. He gives this, this wonderful word of insurance. Verse 32, he says, And now... I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among all who are sanctified. In other words, he highlights the centrality of the word of God. This message of grace that grants this believer a share in this inheritance. He reminds the elders of the power of the gospel which saves the lost and builds up the believer. So in other words, he, he's drawing their attention. Look, this weight is not all on you because who's the ultimate watchman? Who's the ultimate shepherd? Jesus is. It is his church. And it is through his word that he will save his people. And it's through his word that he will sustain his people. So take comfort in the promises of God, in the presence of God, in the power of God when you feel the weight of shepherding. When you find yourself in a group of believers in the church and you find yourself discouraged and you feel like the work is overwhelming and you can't take care of everybody's problems and everywhere you turn around, there's somebody to address, there's somebody to love, there's somebody to care for. The assurance for, is for us. Don't feel that weight by yourself. He's the ultimate watchman. He's the ultimate shepherd. You're serving the Lord, and your job is just faithfully point them to the ultimate watchman and the ultimate shepherd. But be diligent because of the value of the church by the purchase by the blood of Jesus. His, his, his uh, last instruction, but also example, if you're taking notes, and we're almost done here, as he says, avoid greed and practice generosity. I, I, I found what is to be true when it comes to false doctrine, the pursuit of greed. 
Because what false doctrine does, it takes our eyes off of Jesus and it puts our eyes on us. And this undercurrent of this false doctrine is this desire for greed and for power and pride. And you know what helps us in, in, in t- taking care of our greed that we have to fight every day? Generosity. This is why Paul in his own life made it a priority, not just to preach the gospel, but also to be generous and take care of the poor. Think about this. How important must this instruction have been that the very last word he gives the elders before they say goodbye is be generous. Take care of the poor. Because I think in Paul's mind, he knew that a church that remains generous, a church that that remains taking care of the poor, the orphan, the widow, the outcast, is a church that is grounded in gospel truth. As they not just take care of the physical needs of people, but also the spiritual needs of people. Let's wrap it up here. Tony Marita, he gives this text to all the elders, group leaders, or those who aspire to become a shepherd or a pastor. He says, looking back over the Miletus address, one cannot help but ponder the richness and relevance of the shepherding metaphor for pastoral ministry. He says, a pastor is not a cowboy. He's not a CEO. He's not a rock star. He's a shepherd. Faithful shepherds know the flock, care for the flock, pray for the flock, feed the flock, protect the flock. Why? Because the Holy Spirit appointed them. Because Jesus bought the church with his very own blood, and he is the chief shepherd. And even though you might not be a pastor or an elder, You're part of the church that was bought by the blood of Jesus. You're called to love one another, to care for one another, to pray for one another, to warn one another, to feed one another, protect one another. But but, but here's the instruction I want you to walk away with. Before you can do that, the very first instruction that you need to pay attention to is watch your life. Guard yourself. And I think two questions that might be helpful to to, to practice this is the very first question. Are you captivated by Jesus? Are you pursuing godliness? I think those two questions are helpful in helping uh, you watch your life. Am I captivated by Jesus and am I actively pursuing godliness? Now, it's easy for us to hear that instruction and to walk out of here and say, you know what? I need to try harder. I need to do better. No. That's not what you should walk out with. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3, and then we're done. He says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
Let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that, the race that lies before us. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. What's his instructions? Run the race. Put off everything that slows you down, that entraps you and snares you. And how do you do it? By fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author and perfecter of your faith. So how do you watch your life? How are you captivated by King Jesus? Fix your eyes on Jesus. And this is what this table is all about. Anybody got distracted this week? Anybody that lost focus? Anybody that was not captivated by Jesus this week? Good. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And what this table reminds us of is who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The privilege we have to get to sit at this table. And what did we do for that privilege? Absolutely nothing. He took care of it on the cross. He is the one who paid for our sins. He is the one who set us free from the bondages of sins. And he is the one that's going to come back and make all things new. And so we get to sit at the table as we cling to the promises and faith trusting him and faith believing that he has overcome the world and that we are in him. And this is a shadow of what is to come and so as our men and women are coming forward to hand out the elements let's use this time to focus and to meditate on who jesus is let's use this time to be captivated by him to be overwhelmed by him as we focus on our king let me pray for us our heavenly father we thank you for your mercy for your grace Lord, you know what's going on in our lives. You know the distractions. You know what we're going through. You know the things that we've been captivated by. And Lord, in this moment, can you help us to be captivated by you? As we think about these elements that will be distributed to us, the, the, the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Can you help us to realize the privilege we have and the work that you've done? Can you help us to see how your body and your blood addresses our sin and gives us hope, speaks into our weaknesses and into our fears, that we can rest in you and find hope in you? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you for the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us, the new covenant that we have. We thank you for the privilege that we get to sit at this table, not because of anything 
that we've done, but because of everything that you have accomplished for us on the cross, and it is by your grace. And it is in faith that we sit, believing that what you have accomplished for us is finished. Our sins have been covered. Our debt has been paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied. We are sitting at this table not as guests, but as sons and daughters of the king, heirs to the kingdom. And we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that as, as, as we heard your word, as we experienced the table, reorient our hearts. Help us throughout this week to be captivated by you, to be overwhelmed by you. Stir our hearts and our affections. Reveal to us sin that needs to be confessed. Reveal to us areas in our lives that we need to surrender so that we can be more in awe of you. And we love you and we praise you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.